Israel. They had left the land of Egypt. God had delivered them out of Egypt. And they're following Moses. And they were facing different types of opposition. And in this particular situation, uh, they are actually supposed to fight. They actually are supposed to engage the enemy. And they are afraid. Uh, it, they're going to have to exert themselves. They're going to have to put forth energy. It's going to be hard. The enemy is, is hardened. Uh, the enemy is prepared. And yet, if they're going to walk by faith, they're actually going to have to be on the Lord's side and engage the enemy. You know, sometimes in the Bible, in fact, before the people of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, you remember they were trapped up against the Red Sea, mountains on either side, and Pharaoh and his, his men were coming down upon them, and God told them to stand still, really to do nothing and see the salvation of the Lord. So there are times in our lives where there's nothing that can be done, and we stand still and we see God work. But there are other times in our lives where he asks us to do something, and sometimes some things that are very, very difficult and very hard. And it's at those times where we must not stand still, but we must actually engage. Uh, let's look at the text. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin, after their journeys, according to the commandments of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, Wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Is the Lord among us? Is he actually with us at all? Is he working at all or not? Uh, look at verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. The word rod there means banner, or that which would represent the Lord God Jehovah. So Joshua did, as Moses had said in verse 10, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Think about that. It all's kind of riding on whether or not Moses can keep up his hands. What if you're one of the guys fighting? You know, I mean, you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
and you're like, you know what? I've got a sword in my hand, and I'm fighting a guy with a sword in his hand. The least you can do is keep your arms up. You know, I mean, that's not too, too much to ask, is it? Uh, but anyway, that's the way it's working out. Verse 12, but Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited, which has the idea of defeat, Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the years of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Before we pray, let me summarize for just a moment. So here we have the nation of Israel. They're in a time of war. They're in a battle. They have an enemy, Amalek and his people. Moses is holding up his arms. He needs Aaron and Hur to hold up his arms. As long as he holds up his arms with that rod, with that banner, the people of Israel uh, are are victorious in the battle over Amalek. But when the banner, which represents God, the Lord, is lowered, then Amalek, the enemy, begins to overcome the people of Israel. And so it is with you and with me. As long as the Lord is lifted up, as long as he is exalted, as long as, as as it is he who we worship, then he will be victorious in our lives. But when we disesteem disesteem him and lower him and think less of him and little of him, we put ourselves in precarious places of defeat against our flesh, temptation, and the enemy that we face in this world called sin. And the question is really, how do we view the Lord? Because the the point of this is that the people of Israel would understand something about God. And it's actually found in his name, Jehovah Nissi. And the answer is this. Jehovah is my banner. Jehovah is the one. He is my Savior. He is the one who delivers. He is my strength. He is present with me. He is my banner. And we have that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look at your word today. Father, we we face a grave enemy in this day in which we live. It's not the politicians. Ultimately, it's it's sin. It is the wickedness of our own flesh that continually fails us. Father, I thank you for the salvation that is you. You are our salvation. You are our deliverer. Father, you are our banner. Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts today in you, in these ways, by your name. And Father, I pray that our faith and our trust and our confidence in you will grow. Help us, I pray, as we study this passage this morning together. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at this point in Exodus chapter 17, it had only been a few weeks since this group of former slaves really hadn't been long 
uh, 2.5 million of them approximately had camped at the place called Mara just a couple of weeks, a few weeks prior to this battle. And Mara, you remember, was the place of bitter waters. And only a few weeks since they had been there and God had healed those bitter waters, those poisonous waters, and he'd revealed himself to his chosen people as the God who can heal, the God who can heal. Many of us have experienced the healing of God, the salvation of God, the forgiveness of sin, him actually giving us life, uh, making uh, people who were defiled by sin, aliens from God by wicked works, making us who used to be rebels against God, making us his dwelling place, making us his temple. I mean, think about that. And we've experienced these things. And the children of Israel had gone from Marah to Elam, which was a place of refreshing. It was a place of rest. And from there, they journeyed to the wilderness of sin. Uh, You know, I think if you were traveling, uh, you might just avoid that valley, you know, the wilderness of sin. Who wants to go there? But they did. That's where they found themselves. And it was in the valley of sin or the wilderness of sin where they murmured against Moses. Why? Because there was no food. Have you ever murmured because there wasn't something to eat? Remember, you know, those Snickers commercials, maybe you've seen them or the guy isn't himself. He turns into this other very angry person. And, you know, it's like you get him a Snickers and then, wow, we got him back to normal. And some of you wives here are like, yeah, my husband's kind of like that. He's not his normal self. If he gets hungry, too hungry, you got to keep him fed. Well, the people of Israel were murmuring against Moses because they were hungry And they there began to long for the flesh pots of Egypt, which would have been bread and meat that they would have had in Egypt. And then God, you remember, gloriously fed the people of Israel with manna. And and that was exciting for a while, but then they began to complain about that. And after that, they came to Rephidim. So they've gone from no food to now no water at Rephidim. You know, there are times where you sit under the teaching and the preaching of the word of God, or you read it, it's so very much alive. And there are other times where you seem to be in a desert place. Maybe it feels like there's no food, there's no water, you're parched, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and not seeming to be fed. People of Israel were there physically. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17 says, and all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandments of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. How many people are we talking about? Around 2.5 million of them. There's no water for them to drink. Have you ever been in a place where you were so thirsty and there was no water to drink? Have you ever been in the place where your children were so thirsty and yet you had no water to offer them? Most of us have never been in that place. Most of us cannot understand what their, the, the nation of Israel was going through. I mean, Moses is the leader. He's just following God's direction. And uh, here we find the whole nation, two and a half million people, and they've got no food to eat, and they've got no water to drink at this point. They've had no food, and now they have no water. Verse 2, wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. 
What was he supposed to do? And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Sometimes, sometimes I give the people of Israel a hard time for all of their complaining. I suppose they deserve that, but can you imagine being a mom and a dad and having children? And they're thirsty. You look at your leadership and you say, what are you doing? We're trusting you. We're trusting you. What are you doing? And this is where the people of Israel were. And there's no water here at Rephidim at all. You know, hunger is difficult, I suppose, and hunger is discouraging enough to bear, but the sufferings and the torments of being thirsty and not being able to drink, not being able to take in some nourishment is unbearable. Their murmurings and their threatenings against Moses were tempting Jehovah to actually destroy them. And really the pro- their problem was not with Moses, their problem was with God. They were doubting God. Moses, what are you doing? Well, God was in complete control, wasn't he? How quickly they had forgotten the incredible passage of the Red Sea, where God split the Red Sea into two parts, held back those two parts, and two and a half million people and all of their wealth that they had taken from Egypt, they came through on dry ground. How quickly they had forgotten the deliverance of God. How, how quickly they had forgotten the miraculous defeat of Pharaoh and his mighty army or the healing of the poisonous waters at Marah. And we do the same thing, don't we? How quickly we forget how God has delivered us and how he's provided for us. So very faithfully throughout our entire lives. How, how quickly they've forgotten the man in the wilderness of sin. And here they are questioning God's goodness and they're even questioning his presence. You remember I read from, I think it's verse 7, look there, the the latter part, he says there, or the people of Israel say, is the Lord among or not? Is Jehovah with us or is he not with us? That's a good question, by the way. And there, from the rock and Horeb, that rock which Paul tells us is Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Jehovah caused waters to spring forth to quench the thirst of the multitudes And then came the experience that God used to reveal himself to his people in a very, very special way. And Moses understood this, and he calls Jehovah, Jehovah Nissi, which is to be interpreted, the Lord, Jehovah, is my banner. He is my banner. Now the rod, or the staff in chapter 17, the rod and the staff, you remember, uh, that Moses had brought in before Pharaoh. Or the rod that he had held up while they crossed the Red Sea. This banner had shown up several times now. But Moses understood that the glory, the honor, was not found in a rod. It wasn't found in an instrument. It wasn't found in a staff. The glory of the Lord was in God himself. And Moses understood something, and it was taught to him this day in Exodus chapter 17. And this is beautiful. Jehovah is my banner. He is my banner. He is the one that I worship. You know, God's people learned that God's best for them was something that they were going to need to fight for in this passage. 
I don't know how many people are willing to declare war against the evil one, truly take a stand for righteousness, who are willing to say, maybe as Joshua would later say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I realize the battle is intense. I realize that our enemy seems to be tireless. I I realize that the temptations are strong. I realize that the, the cravings of our flesh for this world, worldliness, doesn't seem to go away. But I am going to serve the Lord. They were going to have to fight, and nation upon nation would oppose the people of Israel. Look at verse 8. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So here they are. I mean, they're following God. He has delivered them through the Red Sea. He has provided for them. He's leading them. He's guiding them. And yet here they come to Rephidim, following the Lord, and there's nothing to drink. And here they come to Rephidim, and there's an enemy here. I mean, why would God lead them to a place where there's an enemy? Why would he lead them to a place where there's a war that needs to be fought, where they actually need to engage the enemy? And why does God have them fight anyway? I mean, couldn't God have just taken care of Amalek? Couldn't God have just led them another way, a more peaceful way, an easier way? Well, of course, the answer to that is yes, he could have, but he didn't. Sometimes in our lives, God leads us to a place where there's a battle that needs to be fought. The Amalekites were the descendants of Amalek. And who was Amalek? Well, he was the grandson of Esau. Esau was whose brother? Jacob. Israel. So here you have the descendants of Jacob in Israel. And they come to Rephidim. And who do they find but the descendants of their forefather, Jacob, his brother, Esau, and his grandson, Amalek. And you have the Amalekites. And they were a numerous people, and they were a powerful people, and they persistently opposed Israel. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17, the Bible, God reminds Israel of Amalek. He says, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were Come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee. So the Amalekites would kind of come along. There was two and a half million Israelites and they're all spread out as they're traveling along. And the Amalekites, they wouldn't come and fight the Israelites at the front of their caravan. They would kind of nip at their heels and pick off the weak. And and he says, even all that were feeble behind thee. So those stragglers, the Israelites who were the weakest, who were kind of being left behind a little bit, the Amalekites would come and pick them off. When thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. That's the description of the Amalekites. God had decided to utterly destroy the Amalekites because of their evil disobedience. Look at our text in verse 14. I'll read down through verse 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the years of Joshua, for I will utterly put out of the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This is God's decision, what he's doing to Amalek. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek 
from generation to generation. That's how would you like to be an Amalekite? And God says, I, God, am going to have war with you from generation to generation to generation. Wow. Matters what we do. Matters how we treat God's people, by the way. Centuries later, God commanded King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. They were still around. And God still at war, was still at war with them at that point. But King Saul, you remember, disobeyed God's word. And why? Because he thought his way was better than God's way. How many of us would say, how many of us believe in our hearts honestly that our way is better than God's way? How many of us have made decisions like we believe our way is better than God's way? Yeah, we all have, right? But we know better. King Saul, he made that decision the failure of King Saul, Saul to destroy Amalek ultimately led to his rejection and death from being king. <clears throat> and while King Saul was lying mortally wounded on Mount Gilboa, a young man, a stranger, came to him. You remember, and Saul's laying there and he's injured. And Saul urgently requested this young man to put an end to him since he knew that he would not live and didn't want to fall into the hands of the conquerors. And King Saul begs with him, take my life. The young man, that young man, took Saul's life. The irony was that that young man was an Amalekite. God had told Saul earlier, destroy the Amalekites. Saul knew better. The very thing that Saul would not destroy ended up taking his life. Every one of us in this room face sin. We face temptation. Sometimes we make excuses for things that we do. Sometimes we're not willing to destroy it utterly, though God has given us the strength and power and the wisdom to do so. We allow it to linger. We, we make alliances with it. We come to agreements. We make compromises. We all ought to know that if we are willing to make compromises with sin, the very thing that we are making a compromise with will ultimately bring destruction in our lives. I want to notice this idea of this rod, and specifically Jehovah as our banner. I want to notice, first of all, that the banner of Jehovah rallies us to participate in the battle. The banner, Jehovah, ought to rally us to participate in the battle because he is with us. And that's what the banner would do. If you can imagine you were in the valley, you're fighting against the Amalekites and you're in hand-to-hand combat, and every time, you know, you see Moses' arms raised and the staff raised, you know, you're winning in that sword fight. Wouldn't that be great? But then, you know, the guy seems to get stronger, and he's starting to rally against you, and you kind of look back, and Moses' hands are getting tired. The rod, the staff has fallen. The banner has fallen. And uh, pick up the staff, Moses. Because if you don't, some people are going to die. The banner needs to be raised. And the banner of Jehovah, not a staff, encourages us because God, Jehovah God, is present with us. Look at verse 9, the beginning part. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. 
And so Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Look again at verse 9, the beginning part. He tells, Moses tells Joshua, choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Why? Because God is present with us. For the Israelites of Rephidim, at Rephidim, the banner or the rod rallied them to participate in the battle because Jehovah was present with them. And there was a striking contrast here, I think, between the experience at the Red Sea and the experience at Rephidim. At the Red Sea, the children of Israel were terrified at the sight of Pharaoh's army. Do you remember that? And Pharaoh's army was coming down upon them and there was no way for them to escape. And they were commanded not to do anything but simply to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's all they were to do. And the accomplishment of our salvation, God alone is our Savior. We did nothing for it. We did nothing for our salvation. God saved us. And we see that picture there as they were up against the Red Sea. And God redeemed us, his people, by his grace and through faith and not of works. And the Israelites could do nothing to secure their salvation. But after Jehovah had delivered them safely across the Red Sea on dry land, there was warfare that needed to be waged by the people of Israel. They were to fight the good fight of faith, which is something that you and I, every one of us, ought to experience. We must experience it. It seems to me that there are too many believers who think that there is nothing else to be done after God has saved our souls from death and hell to come. And as we consider Israel, we can clearly see that this is not the case. And Moses clearly told Joshua, choose us out men, there in verse 9, the beginning part, and go out, fight with Amalek. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to engage the enemy. And Moses was very serious about the enemy and the danger at hand. And too many of us as believers are not. We're not serious about the danger. We're not serious about the temptation. We don't hate the sin. We aren't saved by good works. That's true. We're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. We're saved to good works. The Bible teaches us that in Ephesians 2. It tells us in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He's ordained this, that we're to walk in good works. At Rephidim, the people of God needed to fight the good fight of faith, and we need to do the same. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 7, the Bible says this. Paul wrote this. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that, at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. In Jude, in, Jude, in verse 3, we're told to contend for the faith. That's not talking about contending with necessarily one another. I suppose there might be times, but... Contending for the faith. We need to fight the good fight of faith. 
The Apostle Paul instructed Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He said, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But the enemy is spiritual. We're to put on the armor that God has provided for us and to be ready for the attack. And we ought to be ready to defend. As a Christian, we're reminded that we have no armor on our back. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, pointed that out. There's no armor on the back. You can't run away. You need to stand. You need to fight. You may be thirsty. You may be hungry. But there's a battle. The enemy's not running away all of the time. He will flee if you'll resist him. And the idea there is to keep resisting him and keep resisting him and keep resisting him. Not just a one moment resisting, but you're going to have to resist him continually, repeatedly. You're going to have to resist him. You're going to have to fight. So the question is, are we participating with God in the battle? Are we on God's side? You know, you've heard the song, who is on the Lord's side? Who is? Who is on the Lord's side? Are, you, are, are we partnering with God as a soldier? Are we partnering with God in the fight? Are we toiling to accomplish God's will? Because sometimes that is the Christian life. And none of us like to think about that. We'd rather just go on vacation You know, have food brought to us. You don't have to pack food. You just get to go and the place is all set up and you go and they bring you the food. There's like no preparation. You just got to get there and they just take care of you. That sounds great. but That's not the Christian life. Someday there's coming a day of rest, but today is not that day. So the banner of Jehovah rallies us to participate in the battle. I think when Moses told Joshua, choose you out some men and you go and you fight, they were rallied to participate in the battle because... Because God was present with them. Secondly, I notice that the banner of Jehovah reminds us not to trust in our own strength. The banner, God, Jehovah, reminds us that we must not trust in our own strength. He is powerful. He is able. He is able. We are not. Look again at verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand, the banner of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The banner of Jehovah, this rod that Moses held in his hand, reminded reminded the people of Israel not to trust in their own strength. And you see the picture. Every time the the, the banner of God or the rod uh, given to Moses by the Lord would would drop, the, the battle would go the other way. And for the Israelites at Rephidim, the the banner reminded them that Jehovah's power was needed to win the battle. 
And that's true for you and for me today. If he will not fight for us, we cannot win the battle. That he, if he will not give us more of his grace, we cannot win the battle. If his Holy Spirit is not allowed, if his Holy Spirit is not, is not able to deliver us, we cannot win the battle. Are we quenching him? Are we grieving him? Quench means to extinguish. We're told quench not the spirit. The second lesson I notice from this name of God that Moses speaks about, Jehovah Nissi, is that we cannot wage this battle in our strength alone. And some of us try. We work so diligently at it. We get up and we go about our days without ever greeting the Lord in prayer and not asking without without praying, without asking him for his help, without seeking his wisdom from his word. And we, we, we come and we sit under the preaching of the word of God. But some of us don't even do that at times. Without encouraging ourselves in the Lord. But we cannot wage this battle in our strength alone. And when Moses' arms grew tired and the rod, the banner was lowered, the enemy of God prevailed. And the children of God were pressed back. They were being defeated and the rod was a symbol of Jehovah's presence. And the rod was a symbol of Jehovah's power. And when the banner was lowered, it was as if God wasn't present. And God was teaching his chosen people that they needed the presence of Jehovah. And we need his presence. And all the Old Testament was written for our benefit. And so we we make New Testament application from this. And God wants every one of his children to know that we need him. He is our banner. We need him. And when he is lifted up, we are victorious. And when he is honored, we are victorious. When he is obeyed, we are victorious. And when he is followed, we are victorious. But when he is brought down, when he is lowered, defeat, defeat is inevitable. When God is with us, we will win the battle. There are different illustrations of this throughout the Bible. I won't take much time with this, but reminded of the people of Israel when Moses was leading them, they came to that place and God said, I want you to send spies in to spot the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so he did. He sent 12 spies into the land and 10 came back and they brought back an evil report of the land. And two spies returned, Joshua and Caleb, and they brought back a good report of the land. Said, let us go in and take the land. The people of the, the people of Israel, their hearts were made to melt by the evil report of the ten spies. They spoke evil about God's best for them. They said the giants are big, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the the the, the cities are walled, they're fenced, they have great walls around them, like Jericho. And they're they're impregnable. We can't defeat these cities. We can't defeat these giants that are there. And some of us look out and into our lives. We know, we know the challenges that we each face. We know the temptations. We know the weakness of our own flesh. We know some of the things that we've dealt with and struggled with throughout our lives, even as the children of God. And some of us perhaps have, like the people of Israel, our hearts have begun to melt. You know why? Lord, thank you for delivering us. Thank you for saving us from bondage in Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. Thank you for your salvation from death and hell to come. But Lord, to go into the promised land 
to have your best for us. Lord, I used to think it was possible, but I'm getting to the point where I just don't know that it is anymore. And they didn't go into the promised land, you remember, initially. And God killed those ten evil spies. And then the people of Israel said, you know what? Let's change our minds. Now they tried to go into the promised land, but God was not with them. And they were defeated. We need to wage war, but we need to understand God is our banner. He is powerful. He is able. I am not. I'm reminded also about a similar defeat after the tremendous victory over Jericho. In Joshua chapter 7, you can read about how after Jericho, Joshua sent between two and 3,000 men to take the small city of Ai because of sin. In the life of a, man's, a man by the name of Achan, who took something that God wanted for himself, but Achan wanted it for himself. Joshua sent those two to 3,000 men into that small city of Ai to take it. should have been no problem, and they were defeated. My question to you is this. Is God present with you? We need his presence. We need his presence. He's powerful. Men actually died because of Achan's sin. And what do we learn from Jehovah Nissi? Well, we're reminded that we need his presence. And neither the work of the Christian experience nor the warfare of the Christian experience will ever be successful without the presence of God. And the Jehovah, Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. There's one last truth and we'll be done. The banner of Jehovah rallies us to participate in the battle because he's present with us. The banner of Jehovah reminds us not to trust in our own strength because he is powerful. He is able. And finally, the banner of Jehovah reassures us that victory is certain. Look at verse 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. And all the while, Moses is holding up that banner. And his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. In other words, don't let Joshua ever forget this. This truth that we're talking about this morning. Moses, don't let Joshua ever forget this. I know he was the one down in the trenches. He was the one down on the battlefield. He was the one down with the men fighting the warfare against Amalek. And driving them backward and discomforting those men of Amalek. Moses, but don't you let Joshua ever forget this truth. That Jehovah is present. That Jehovah is powerful. That it is Jehovah who gives the victory. For I will utterly put out of the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And the name of God here, Jehovah Nissi, means the Lord is my banner. You know, for the Israelites at Rephidim, 
or the Israelites at Rephidim. The banner or the rod assured them that Jehovah was at work on their behalf. Victory was certain. And as long as the banner of Jehovah was held up, it brought victory to God's people. And when the banner of Jehovah was lowered, they began to push backward. What a wonderful encouragement I think it is to me. It must have been to God's people to see the banner of Jehovah raised high. The banner of Jehovah was an assurance of victory. Do you realize that the victory over the powers of evil and the enemy of our souls is always assured when his banner is over us? In most occasions in the Old Testament, the priests would approach the Israelites before they would go into battle and they would say something like this. Deuteronomy 20 speaks about this. And the priest would say this to the, to the men. They would say, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day into battle against your enemies. Listen to this now and, and think about this practically. If you're a man about to go off into hand-to-hand combat, what, what are some of the emotions that you're feeling? Anxiety? Fear? And they would say this, Let not your hearts faint. Fear not. And do not tremble. They have to say this because they probably were trembling. Neither be ye terrified because of them. Why? For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Wow. Now that's an Old Testament statement to men who are going off to physical war. But the point was this, God is your banner. He's present. He's powerful. And the victory is sure. Because he's your pen. Psalm 118 and verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What shall man do unto me? And the rod in Moses' hand on that day, on this day in Rephidim, was only a symbol. You see it in verse 15. Moses builds an altar after this is all over, and he calls the name of it Jehovah Nissi. Moses got the picture. He got the point. It wasn't the rod in his hand that had won the victory. The rod in his hand just represented the one who had won the victory. The Lord, Jehovah Nissi. He is my banner. He is present. He is powerful. And the victory is sure whenever he fights for us. Moses calls the name of that altar. Jehovah himself is my banner. You know, in Isaiah 53, the birth of a savior was prophesied. Isaiah wrote about a root that would dry out or would grow out of a dry ground. And that root was born out of the lineage of David and is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our banner. And when Moses lifted up a pole, you remember uh, the brazen serpent in the wilderness to look at for all those who had been bitten by the serpent and were dying in desperate need of salvation. And he raised up that pole. By the way, the word pole there is also interpreted banner. In order that they might live, it was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Jesus himself told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the cross of Christ 
is our banner. We have a cross behind me. And to some degree, it reminds us that God is with us. And that God is powerful and that he's able and that victory is sure. There is no emblem of a person on that cross. He died on that cross. He was buried in the tomb and he rose again the third day. It's empty, the tomb. It's empty. The cross is empty. It's been vacated. And Christ himself is also our banner for the Christian life. And we can be victorious because Jesus has overcome. In John 16 and verse 33, the Bible says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. We should not be surprised by that at all. We should not be surprised by that. Some of us are vexed to the core. And there are many things to be vexed about. But what ought not vex us is that our lives, that, that, life, that life changes. That should not vex us. We should not be vexed or perturbed because life is hard. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I, Jesus said, have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has promised us his presence. He said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jehovah, my banner, assured the Israelites of victory. And likewise, faith in our banner, the Lord Jesus Christ, assures us of victory. In fact, there really is no other way of victory. First John 5 says that this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. So I ask you this morning, what is your faith in? What are you trusting in? Where is your confidence? When you see the cross, you ought to be reminded that Jesus Christ is your banner. That cross is empty. He rose again. He sent and has given you his spirit to live within you, to go everywhere you go. He is present with you. And not just, he didn't give us some broken reed that's helpless, but he's given you himself. He's giving, he has given me himself. The Lord God Almighty is our inheritance. He is our salvation. And we have him, the victory is sure. And so you can rejoice. And I can rejoice, no matter what tribulations may come, because God is our banner. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to close.